0: hello dear listener old friends and new welcome to episode one of discourse the grabbing back podcast thank you so very much for joining me kayara your host on this exciting new adventure into the realm of feminist theory thought and experience i'm a little bit giddy with excitement to be talking to you I set up this podcast as part of a wider project to make feminist theory more interesting and accessible as so many of us today identify as feminists woohoo, but haven't had the chance to stop and think in depth about some of the big ideas and concepts that are involved in that. If you want to find out more please do check out our website grabbingback.com where you can read articles and creative pieces on feminist theory. I also invite you to pitch to us, get involved, and make this a collective space for feminists of all backgrounds to come together and share our thoughts on this wonderful, large, at times complex and confusing, but ever hopeful movement. You can also find us on Instagram at grabbingback, that's G-R-A-B-B-I-N-G-B-A-C-K, Grabbing Back, and on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle. This is currently a bit of a one-woman band operation, so if you have any thoughts on improvements or if you'd like to get involved in any way, please DM me on any of our social media platforms, or you can email me at hello at grabbingback.com. Our first episode today looks at dipping our toes into feminist theory as we chat to a young woman whose everyday activism has been such a joy for me to watch up close. Without further ado, here is our very first episode. Welcome to Discourse, the Grabbing Back podcast, talking about feminist theory, thought, and experiences. I'm absolutely delighted to have the one, the only Megan Whitlock on with us today. Megan is an English language and literature student from Oxford. She lives with her mum, her dad, her brother and their cat in Preston in Lancashire. She's incredibly involved in the feminist scene at Oxford. And while I knew her there, she ran loads of feminist discussions and workshops for the 1980 Gender Equality Student Society. Her interests include socialism, feminism and cats, and she is absolutely famous for her Rosie the River to look, where she wears a colourful normally red bandana around her head and will just just approach you and talk to you about feminism. So thank you so much, Meg, for coming in today.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Hello. Hello.
0: So I know you from Oxford interesting complex glorious bizarre institution that we enjoy railing at yeah yeah ultimate symbol of patriarchy but also of learning which we love so it's mm-hmm. a bit complex I thought to get us just into the flow of things to make it interesting we could start with a little lightning round of questions Ooh, exciting is that okay
1: yes that's more than fine oh brilliant okay So are you ready
0: I'm ready as I'll ever be. Okay, I'll count you in. Three, two,
1: one. Favourite era of feminist writing? Oh, I'm inclined to say in the 60s for no particular reason. Great. (laughs) Top feminist icon? Angela Davis. Does that count? Yes. Area of feminism we need to improve on most? I would say uh, including trans women in feminism and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Brilliant. Feminist you'd most want to interview? I don't know, you? (laughs) Uh, Moving quickly on, Mm -hmm. three words to
0: describe the feminism of the future. Inclusive, fun, uh, revolutionary. Amazing. Favourite thing about the feminist movement?
1: I think the way that we are currently trying to adapt and include more people and the way that you can chat and have this sort of discourse, which is nice. And favourite piece of feminist fiction? oh girl woman other does that count oh that definitely counts yeah I say there's someone who's not book. read it but oh it's so, so amazing you need to read it yes <laughs> on the bookshelf quite
0: literally on the bookshelf with about I think about 20 others Ah, oh, amazing <laughs> there's so many things in there that I think I want to dig into in the rest of our conversation mm-hmm. but thanks for getting it going also Angela Davis oh <sighs> <sighs> I mean, I know that the term feminist icon is really problematic because we don't want to focus on an individual and we're a movement and we're collective mm-hmm. and all of the things. But also, if you did have to pick anyone,
1: what a women. Oh, she's just incredible. I was listening to one of her talks over lockdown, which was just amazing. And oh, she was so fascinating. Mm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with with the very beginning a very good place to start I guess something that would just open up our conversation a lot would be to ask you if you attribute your feminism to any particular aspect of your identity or to any particular part of your growing up experience
1: Mm -hmm. I would say the main thing for me is all the women who were in the never mind I can't speak
0: brilliant All the women. All the women. I just love the women. I mean, that is too what I attribute my feminism to is just all the women. Yeah, I'm like, here you go. It's for you. Let's advance Mm -hmm. some rights. Yeah. It was your grandma, it was your great-grandma Peg. Yeah, Peg. it was all the kind of women in
1: my family. So I was really lucky that I had a fabulous great-grandma Peg who really passed that down to my nan, all this kind of liberal, independent thinking, who passed that down to my mum and my auntie and my cousin Alex. And I have been surrounded by all these women from a very early age. And it's just great to be in an environment where from the get-go I was told you know the world's yours to take and having all these women who are so strong and have done so much incredible stuff like around me and being able to meet up with them chat with them usually over a bottle of wine about our experiences about just life and having them as examples has really kind of taught me you know the power of women when we get together collectively and we work together and it's just been a really nice positive environment to grow up around and I think that's definitely where a lot of my feminism comes from. Nice,
0: so would your great-grandma Peg have self-described as a feminist?
1: I would like to think so, yeah. From all the things, so she died when I was about three, four, but from everything all my family have told me. I even have a tattoo in sort of <laughs> honour of her matching with my mum. That's how kind of close-knit we are. It's a little feather, kind of um soppy, but she used to tell my mum that if you see a white feather, it's like an angel looking out for you. And then my mum always used to tell me that if you see a white feather, it's your grandma Peg looking out for you. So I have it on my wrist <laughs> matching with my mum.
0: Yeah, and your grandma. What's your grandma's name?
1: Um, her name was Agnes. Um, my nan's name uh, is Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Your nan. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so would would your nan identify as a
1: Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> my nan is great. So, um, she's one of those women that she's already really, really with it. <laughs> she's down with the kids you can chat to her about anything and she's willing to chat with you about it. And she tells you all these incredible stories about what her life was like growing up in the North back then and how she's overcome so much stuff as a sort of working woman and raising, again, my auntie and my mum, which must have been challenging for her. (laughs) And she's just really, really inspirational. And it's great that she can kind of chat with me and my cousin and we can have these discussions about modern feminism and compare it to her sort of experiences it's just great
0: yeah that sounds amazing mm-hmm. that sounds like a beautiful relationship that you've got going on there I take it your mum and your auntie were quite rebellious oh definitely
1: right? definitely <laughs> yeah,
0: that's nice I know that being northern is mm-hmm. a really big part of your identity as well <laughs> Does That is a intersect of your feminism
1: I would say definitely in the same way that I think other issues intersect because feminism can never be like an isolated thing your feminism is a culmination of all the different aspects of your identity and I definitely think again the same way that class will always play into feminism the same way that kind of your regionality would always play into it because that's where your experiences lie and I think particularly because socialism plays into my feminism quite a bit because that's where I am politically aligned and I think there's a big big intersect with northerness and socialism that means it's kind of impossible to separate that from the feminism if that makes sense so if I identify as a socialist feminist northern will automatically come into that as part of the big sort of socialist umbrella
0: you don't say you don't say that northernism, northern,
1: northernism <laughs> I was, that was a word I just threw out there but honestly who knows northern,
0: nor, yeah sure we'll go with we'll it go with northernism intersects <laughs> with socialism fascinating never heard
1: that just one lots before. of isms um, <laughs> Lycanism, yeah. mm-hmm. um, we like it, yeah. Um that's it.
0: <laughs> Northernness, that's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. can we unpack that idea of why just why that is a brief maybe a history one oh one? Um
1: so I think socialism is arguing for sort of more equal opportunities for everyone and i think one of the things this pandemic of nothing else has foregrounded is that the north-south divide is very much there and its prominence so i think it's impossible to look at your socialism without looking at regional inequality and sections of the uk that have been sort of underfunded or neglected by the government um and yeah i think There are certain regions of the North that definitely fall under that. Like It's a beautiful and amazing and incredible place to live. And there's so much to do and so much to see. But yet still one thing going to uni in Oxford has taught me, and particularly wanting to move back North after I graduate, the way that people kind of perceive that decision is definitely kind of indicative, I think, of the way that the North-South divide is still there. Like I've had a lot of people tell me I would be, and I quote here, wasting my potential if I went back up North, which really is ridiculous because, again, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the country to live in um, with so much stuff going on. I think it's really hard to separate my socialism from Northern identity because that divide is so prominent. If you're looking at inequality, it's impossible to ignore. Therefore, if you then bring feminism into that, socialism aids the aims of feminism the same way feminism aids the aims of socialism. So they all kind of intersect in a nice, messy Venn diagram.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no, I definitely see that especially when we're talking about inequality, mm-hmm. to throw a, a slightly spicy question out there and very much to play mm-hmm. the devil's advocate, mm-hmm. do you think that Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> being the first female Prime Minister, oh, can
1: be considered feminist? So my problem with this, I think, is the same problem I have with a lot of things so representation is massively important it's hugely important and it is it's a landmark that she was a woman unable to be prime minister but i think the problem is is when you class representation as the solution to all problems because it's not just because you have kind of representation in a certain area be that government or whatever doesn't mean that person is automatically going to do a good thing or is going to kind of you know advocate for the cause you have to look at i mean I say this as a, a, a Labour <laughs> uh, supporting person, though, again, on the fence about that, about the moment. But yeah, you have to kind of look again at sort of, we had Theresa May in the government and look what she did. We've got Pretty Patel at the moment who is deporting people left, right and centre. You just have to look at that and see, again, just because you have representation in a place that doesn't automatically mean that you have achieved e- equality, that you are achieving a fairer society. So whilst it's incredibly important I think a lot of people tend to use it, particularly this cover current government not to be too spicy um is using it as kind of a mask to be like well we can't be racist or we can't be doing this because we've got these people in government and that is kind of being used as a mask to hide more malicious policies i think and the same goes for maggie factor and the fact that you can acknowledge that it's incredible that someone like her could have been prime minister you can acknowledge that it's incredible you can have a woman as prime minister and that's really really important and long overdue but you can still kind of say that doesn't solve the problem, though. And actually, it made a lot of things worse.
0: Yeah, she broke barriers as an individual. Mm. And that's great representation for people from those backgrounds But maybe we don't want her breaking those particular barriers and that particular representation. Maybe- yeah, I
1: think it's a tricky question in the fact that, again, it's not to undermine the fact that it is momentous that she was able to become prime minister but again representation is not a a solution in the fact that it will help the problem in many ways because it shows other people that they can do it and that's incredible and it paves the way for those other people but looking at the present issues we are facing here and now the same way that issues people in the 80s were facing there and then you've got this kind of problem where representation her being a woman didn't stop her you know Negatively impacting all the minors or all the other awful things that she's done. I mean, Maggie Thatcher milk snatcher, but all that sort of stuff that didn't stop her from doing that. And just saying she's a woman doesn't erase that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I had something to add in there, but you know, it's gone out of my head, and it was probably just agreeing with you. <laughs> so, slight bit of a gear mm-hmm. change. Then we've talked a bit about your lived experience of feminism. We've talked a bit about our ideas in general. Mm-hmm about feminism and about representation, but thinking about the way that you developed your thought, thinking about other texts and how we engage with feminism in that Mm -hmm. way, what feminist texts would you say have had a big impact on you?
1: I think it's really interesting because I'd always identified as a feminist and it was always a huge part of my identity as my family and friends who have had to listen to me drone on about it would definitely say. But I think it wasn't until I came to university and started reading more about feminism and different feminist theories as part of my degree as side text, the company that, and also getting involved in the 1980 stuff and the events there. So that was when I started reading more texts like um, Audre Audrey Lorde, which again I know you are a yeah. big fan. Yeah, the Master's Tools all and all that it. sort of stuff.
0: And also just mm. to say, could you explain what 1980 is? Yeah. So um
1: the 1980 Society is Merton's Feminist Society, Merton being the Oxford College that me and Kyara were at. We have this feminist society that i think was set up by emily capstick wasn't it and you were a part of it at the start yeah so me and a friend olivia tan and a couple of others took over the helm of that got to host all sorts of different events having discussion groups having film nights all this sort of stuff and there was loads of chance to kind of talk about theory in a very casual way one of the things that put me off reading theory for so long and i know this isn't really an excuse but it seems so big and it was hard to even know where to start and then There's a lot of people that will be like, oh, you've not read this. so You can't be a true feminist. You've not read this. You can't be a true socialist. So there's so much pressure to find the right, quote unquote, place to start. But again, 1980 was a really nice environment to explore theory because it was a place where you could chat about it in a very beginners and open way with people who are on the same page as you and explore it and discover it together, which was really nice.
0: It's interesting you say that's not an excuse, kind of finding feminist theory Mm. to be so big and intense and and you say oh that's not an excuse to start but I would say mm. it definitely is I mean that's why I've set up these conversations set up the website was because I felt mm. I felt exactly that and I'm you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm slightly notorious in those French <laughs> circles for being that feminist that will have read all of the books and people will message me and go oh what should I buy for you know this age cousin or something and I still go oh gosh I don't know I feel like I've read a mm, definitely out There, and I still feel intimidated by so many so many books on theory and I I can talk around them I can talk about them but you know I've maybe still not sat down to read what we might consider the classic texts because they they have these massive ideas and they're really long and they're quite they're quite complex and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that they talk about these complex ideas and that's really interesting and really important but it can make them Just a little bit intimidating, Mm. and then I sometimes—I don't know if you would feel this at all as well, Meg. But I sometimes feel like there's a little bit of Mm. that goes on in feminism. Oh, that's pop feminism. That's not kind of quote-unquote real, real theory. And I'll Mm. definitely admit that I, I I've been a part of that at times as well. And there's just this big question of what do we mean by feminist text? What do we mean by Mm -hmm. feminist theory? Just like our question of can Margaret Mm. Thatcher be a feminist? What? What do we mean by feminist theory is really controversial.
1: I think so part of the thing that I used to get over that was even when you asked me to come on the podcast, I was like, I have no idea why you're asking me. Because there are so many people with way more experience on certain issues or whatever than I have. But you've got to acknowledge that there are always going to be people who have read more than you or experienced more than you. But you also have your own experiences that you can kind of bring to the table there. So as long as I think you're respectful of other people's voices and that you can sit back and listen and learn and acknowledge that, you know, sometimes people are going to correct you. And that's great. because That's a learning opportunity. And that's what the movement is all about. I think when you kind of try and stick your feet in the sand too much and be like, well, I'm sticking to this text because this is the class or this is what people should say. And rather than listening and kind of collaborating with these people who know more than you or have read more than you, that's really exciting because it kind of gives you a chance to grow as a collective, which I think is really nice. And one of the things I like so much about the feminist spaces, at least I've experienced, is the fact that there's always someone who does know more than you and has read more than you that you can learn from.
0: Yeah, definitely. So before I cut you off and we went on our wonderful little tangent here, you were, I think, enthusing about a certain writer? Yes, yes, yes,
1: yes. Again, obviously lots of experiences that I am definitely not an expert in, but reading stuff like The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House is, yep, oh, you've got your book out, amazing. Reading texts like that is just I think a really nice place to start and her essays were just so eye-opening. It embodied like all the sort of things that I was concerned about, that I wanted to know more about, the experiences that I didn't understand and couldn't understand. And I just think it's a really, really great text for showing Again, kind of coming back to that issue as to why sort of representation doesn't mean anything if you're not actually going to listen to those voices, if you're just going to have it as a tokenistic gesture, if you're not going to work together as a collective, if you are not going to put those voices forward. I think it's a really good text for understanding that and getting that across, and she just writes it so brilliantly, and it's
0: so accessible as well. You said mm-hmm. that I'm holding up my copy. I'm actually not. I'm holding up a Penguin mm. Modern Classics called the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and I got it for mm. one pound in an independent bookshop and it's I mean it's literally about I think 50, mm-hmm. 51 pages long and tiny and it for those who haven't had the joy yet of reading Audre Lord, not yet because you, you don't Would have highly recommend you it to. it's a collection of really short essays and coming back to your point on representation Meg I was just flipping through and I think the reason, so the the title, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle, The Master's House, comes from one of the particular essays where she opens it up by talking about the fact that she's at a conference and that she's the only or one of the very few Black women there. And the importance of representation of her there and why she was, all the reasons she was the only Black woman there having been invited to speak. But she doesn't just say, you know, and now I'm talking. She goes on to talk about her experiences and how mm. to get more women involved that look like her and have had similar experiences of her, and why it's important to do that in terms of the potential that it holds for the whole feminist movement. And I think that's something that I personally love about Lord is she talks about the she talks about the importance of diversity because of the potential that it has for everybody to move mm. forward. And to move along. And I think that's a really beautiful thing that she brings to the to
1: the conversation. And I think it's only when you start doing that, too, you can start listening to people as well, because I think one of the issues we have, I think, again, coming back to that problem of representation is so using the sort of Margaret Thatcher kind of example, you'd look at a woman prime minister and you see them as a woman prime minister and therefore you kind of talk about them through the lens of oh this is a woman prime minister as opposed to them being able to look at her holistically as an individual with again in this case lots of flaws and lots of things wrong and that uh, her identity can sometimes erase the kind of full picture there the same way i think we have that in lots of different subsects in feminism and the fact that when you Use representation only as a token. You're only you're shoeboxing someone into an identity, which, whilst it's important to kind of have that sort of intersexuality, because your identity is inseparable from your sort of feminism, it's the idea that we shouldn't just be having representation as sort of a token or asking people to just talk about their experience as an identity. We should be able to, I don't know, holistically look at the whole sort of picture. I don't know what I'm saying, but yeah.
0: yeah no holistically look at the whole picture couldn't agree more let's have a think then about different aspects of identities and getting everyone involved in feminism I know I asked before recording what are one of the main things that come up when you're talking about feminism with your other feminist friends and you said actually it was how to have constructive conversations about feminism mm-hmm. with your guy friends and how to make that accessible interesting engaging and you mentioned that that's something that you you really want to get guys involved, but you're not sure how to hit.
1: Them yeah, right notes. so you talk it's been a question of? I've been kind of preoccupied with a lot recently because quite a lot of my closest friends are men. Don't really know how that happened. It just sort of naturally <laughs> fell that way, but. One of the biggest sort of things I noticed and was the only kind of way sometimes you can get people to realize how bad gender equality still is in this country sometimes is to frame it through. Here's how patriarchy and sexism negatively impacts you as a man as a and that's the main pathway I've used to kind of engage with male friends when talking about sexism and stuff and that's the most effective one and I don't really know how I feel about the fact that it's quite hard sometimes to get male friends to engage in feminism unless you frame it for a lens of here's how it negatively impacts you as a man and I don't know it comes back to that sort of like meme you know I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other people and a lot of them don't mean it like that at all they're all absolutely lovely lovely people if you're listening to this and think I'm calling you out it's probably not you anyway it's kind of one of those things where it's sort of like trying to get people involved without having to sort of say oh and it negatively impacts you too rather than just get involved because you should care about feminism and you should care about sexism regardless as to how big or little of an impact it has on you if that makes sense
0: yeah that does make sense I don't know how I feel about that either because I think you know on one hand I think you know survival instinct wise it's quite natural to have more of a vested interest when someone goes and this is directly impacting you Mm-hmm. But also if we're thinking about having a society that is really collective and really sharing, which as a socialist, as a fellow socialist, speaking to a mm-hmm. dyed red socialist, I know it's something very important to both of us. What I find quite interesting is when I talk to my guy friends, and you might have witnessed this, Meg, for mm-hmm. example, a little feminist Zoom call event mm-hmm. last week. I spoke to kind of some of my guy friends and we said, jokingly, what are your feminist credentials? And they went, oh, well, I've got a mum. <laughs> or I've got a sister, and um, oh, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that one,
1: yeah, what? it's one of the things where it's kind of like it's important that you everyone has their own lens that they see the world and see certain issues through and also I would not want to undermine at all the idea that things like toxic masculinity are really important and I I think they're absolutely horrific but having that as your only stake in feminism or the only kind of thing that gets you to engage as opposed to also being like so I can say you know I think it's awful that We have the pay gap. It's awful that sexism is still such a prominent thing. It's also awful that there's still this huge rape culture around, particularly in universities and stuff. But I can also say that it's awful that, you know, toxic masculinity um, is pressuring men. The idea that male suicide rates are really high, all that sort of stuff. I can look at both of that, whereas it sometimes feels a lot when you're talking to guys, you kind of have to be like, yes, so toxic masculinity and that is their sole gateway into the conversation as opposed to thinking, well, it's also awful that women are going through this stuff, too. That feels like a bit of a generalisation, and I don't mean it to be, but sometimes that's how it feels. And I, again, it kind of links into that thing you were saying, the idea that many people... Have to view feminism through the lens of oh well this is impacting my mum or my sister but even if you didn't have your mum or your sister in your life you should still care about this issue the same way that we can all care about things that don't directly impact us that seems like a very obvious point but it can be hard sometimes when having these conversations to get that across
0: yeah I do wonder though if those two gateways the kind of oh well you should care because you have a mum or a sister and slash or oh well you should care because this impacts you too through toxic masculinity I do wonder if regardless of how we feel about them they do to some extent help get more people engaged Mm. and I wonder if we should at this point just take that as a win when we compare you know when we because we're talking very clearly here about about gender and Mm -hmm. about gender equality and obviously feminism is this hugely intersectional movement now Mm -hmm. and when we compare this to say uh, ableism discriminating against people based on disability or classism or racism everybody has a mother a lot of people have female relatives aside from that Mm -hmm. but not everybody will have a disabled relative Mm -hmm. or most people will not have a relative that is a different ethnicity or race from them Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth with different aspects of identity and so I guess we kind of just have to wonder, you know, is that a win that we take when we think about gender equality that we don't have when we talk about advancing other aspects of the quality and, and related to identity of politics that we need to then consider also how we get people engaged with those mm-hmm. sort of things that might be even harder to make people empathise, I'm sure, with kind of every aspect of identity.
1: Yeah, i kind of of the opinion that you know as long as you're caring and you're actually putting sort of words into actions and you're doing things and you're invested then sure part of me's tempted to say doesn't really matter how you got there as long as you're here and you're putting in the work to make things better and far be it from me to judge anyone else for how they got there but I do think we should care about stuff even if we don't have direct experience in it that just seems like common sense to me And again yeah. I think as long as you then do something about it and that is the most important thing all the identity politics and everything aside the most important thing is taking action and actually putting words into action to try and make things better and if you're working together as a group to do that then I would consider that a win. Mm.
0: Coming back then to this idea of feminist theory Mm -hmm. I think it's really easy to be like oh we don't need to read then we just need to do go to a protest quite hard at the moment sign a petition mm-hmm. quite easy at the moment do all these things but feminist theory is maybe then our tool to accessing those other perspectives mm-hmm. our way of accessing different ways that people think not only through what we might call feminist texts and fiction like they girl and other mm-hmm. but also through the theory a lot of the theory is very logical it's very complex it's very ideas focused which is as we've discussed, why it's really hard to get into them. But it's also quite, it can be quite good at putting forward very rational arguments mm-hmm. that are very, not even evidence-based, but just logic-based mm-hmm. for for equality, which makes it then quite undeniable, a lot of arguments that, that are presented just around basic ideas of, well, this is why equality is important, and you don't necessarily have to have the greatest empathy skills Mm -hmm. you just have to agree with our logic
1: that comes down to the fact that i think everyone has a responsibility if you can to educate yourself and that's why theory is so great because it means that you are educating yourself you are actively taking steps as an individual to go out and learn things and that's really important and you're opening yourself up to loads of different ideas and whether or not you agree with them that is up to you and it helps you to formulate your own opinion i think Time where theory becomes problematic is when it's used as a gatekeeping tool and the idea that, oh, you're at this protest, but you haven't read the theory or oh you're at this movement, but you haven't read the theory. So I think, yes, is an educational tool. It's invaluable. You cannot replace it. And again, we do all have a responsibility if we are able to read that. But at the same time, it is not a gatekeeping or a rank of how good of a feminist or a socialist or anything else really You are. I think that comes Um, back to the interesting idea of what is the definition of theory, because I when we think of theory, we tend to think of all the sort of old classics. But again, there's all sorts of really accessible thought on blogs online that it's so easy to look up. And that's comes back to what I was saying about the idea that theory is a brilliant educational tool. It shouldn't be used as gatekeeping, but as a chance to go out there and take the steps yourself to sort of research stuff and have a look at stuff. That's what that's really useful. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think that is the ultimate meaning of academia. Mm. I've mentioned earlier in your introduction that we met mm. at Oxford and it's this I jokingly said it's this place we rail against because it's very mm. patriarchal but it's also a place we love it's a place of learning and education and academia but I think there's equally this idea of gatekeeping of oh mm. it's a you know if it's an Oxford professor that's written it It must be brilliant definitely um, but actually there is some wonderful stuff of course I would personally I don't know you'll be honest I would slightly want to qualify that and be a bit careful and say mm. you know there are a lot of people online, yeah very
1: interesting news yeah. and some very very uh just straight up toxic mm, debates definitely. going on so there's so many sort of awful awful debates but all that does is it also distracts from the mains problems and it, it can also be very first world centered which i think isn't mm. at all a good thing so again there's always the caveat of be careful when you're looking at stuff like that look at the sources look where the information is coming from but yeah i think often particularly with the media and the news and things like that the tendency is it's sort of to discredit movements by saying you know isn't it stupid they're having this debate over this that and the other which seems like inconsequential matter in the grand scheme of things but yeah
0: yeah that's something that I'm very aware of when I read feminist theory is this idea of where it comes from and most of it does come from the US and the UK Mm. and wanting to find some more feminist theory and actually having said, oh, we can just research it. It Actually, it can be quite hard to find Mm -hmm. some text. One thing I particularly wanted to learn about was South American feminism. I spoke to, I think, about four or five different tutors Mm -hmm. doing global papers. And not one person could direct me to Mm -hmm. anything. So I'm still on the lookout. If anyone listening has any recommendations on South American feminism, I'd love to hear. But it can be quite hard. So keeping that in mind, there are some texts that you you love and I know you would recommend, perhaps mm-hmm. modern feminist thought pieces. Could you talk a bit about what those are?
1: One of my favourite books is Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. It was initially get, given to me by a joke by one of my mates because I was dating someone who was very socialist at the time and he gave it to me as a joke, but I read it and it was actually a really brilliant book that really kind of dissects in a really simple and accessible way how all these problems intersect and how things that you might not even think about, like how workplace labour, how unions impact our identities and positions as women. And it kind of links it all together in a really clear and concise way. It says, okay, here is how your workplace and how capitalism and how all these things affect your identity as a woman and threaten in many cases and with all the people I've recommended it to, it, it kind of opens your eyes to ideas that you might not have previously thought about. So, what our definitions of labour are, the idea of domestic labour as equivalent, but often seen in society as less than paid labour, despite the fact it is equal amounts of work, and this tendency we have to discredit this housewife role and how that is equally important labour and should be ranked along the same and you should have the same rights, and how the idea of the mother and this sort of childbirthing role is often manipulated and used to capitalize off this growing workforce and the idea of all these sort of interesting ideas that intersect how capitalism affects your role as a mother as a woman as a member of the workforce yeah it's really really interesting even if you disagree with it
0: that sounds fascinating I have heard a lot about this book from you over the years I think it is probably your definitely recommendation I've still not read it I will lend it <laughs> you <laughs> Oh, yes, please. I'll <laughs> add it to my my 25 um, kind of stack of feminist books that's steadily growing. Before I mm-hmm. get to reading it, could you tell me a bit more about this idea of
1: how unions are really important to feminism so, and oh. labour? It's been a while since I've actually read the book because I've just lent it out to everyone over the past two years. There's the very basic idea that most people will have encountered that women are still discriminated against in the workplace because of the assumption that if you're of a certain age, you are going to go off and give birth. The idea that even so even racial issues you can separate it down so you have white women in the workplace being discriminated against and black women are earning even less and getting even less sort of workplace rights than white women who are getting even less than men so you've got this sort of big chain of (laughs) discrimination in the workplace so it's kind of how all these sort of socialist ideas and socialist institutions such as unions are really important to challenging those sort of ideas but yeah one of the things that I found the most interesting about the book was the idea that, again, I hadn't really seen or examined how we perceive things like domestic labour in comparison to paid labour in society and how that doesn't have the same amount of protections because you're not employed or you're not in this kind of system. But the idea that you are still being used to kind of fund, well, not that's the wrong word that's kind of funnel the workforce so you've got this whole assumption that up until recently the woman would have to stay at home and cook the meals because the man is off there working and it's important that he stays fed that he stays happy to be able to work productively and produce more things at work and the idea that the woman is just sort of an offset part of that but yeah it's really fascinating I just recommend you read it that explains it far more coherently than I could on a Wednesday morning
0: No, that sounds great. Why women have better sex under socialism by Kristen R. Godsee G-H-O-D-S-E-E, if anybody's interesting. Interesting. (laughs) If anybody's interested. Well, Mm -hmm. I feel like we've covered a lot and i'm aware that you have some wonderful work to be getting on with i hear you're writing
1: oh what fun essay. yeah i've got my shakespeare portfolio which i'm also doing on feminist stuff obviously on the role of the mother and how the mother is an empowering role and the idea of why we fetishize dead women's bodies but not dead men's bodies which is all very exciting <laughs> i mean you've got to tell us a little bit
0: more now i mean for those for those who who do not write essays about Shakespeare on the daily that seems slightly less yeah else,
1: so on, my thing I'm, I'm going to preface this and say anyone who knows me will know that I try and pick the weirdest topics possible so my motherhood essay is also about kind of motherhood and cannibalism <laughs> because yeah so um, you've got the idea of I'm looking particularly at Titus Andronicus and the role of Tamora and how often that Shakespeare kills off his mothers and if the mother is spared it means something sort of significant and you have this really interesting fear of the mother in the Tudor period because it was the only all-woman space so when an aristocratic woman was giving birth she would be in this sort of chamber by herself with only female like servants and chambermaids or whatever and that's the only space in that period that was allowed to be all women occupied and the men didn't know what went on in there so there was all sorts of things like are they committing witchcraft but she's just giving birth but there's all this sort of suspicion about that so Shakespeare really takes advantage of this on the stage and has all these like birthing scenes and scenes symbolic of birth and rebirth because there was also all that anxiety about Queen Elizabeth as the ultimate mother or not mother because she was refusing to give birth so you've got all this anxiety that's then projected onto these women who are therefore given the most important roles I would argue or am I? arguing in the play. And then when it comes to dead bodies, I'm mainly looking at the idea of Juliet and Ophelia and how you kind of have this in culture tendency to fetishize the dead women in these plays, despite the fact, particularly in Ophelia's case, she's not even a central character, really. And you don't have the same sort of fetishization of Hamlet. And the same way in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet's tomb is a thing you can go visit in Verona, but you don't have any shrines to Romeo in the same way. And particularly looking at past performances of these characters and how the women's bodies there's a big focus on them as sort of living breathing parts in and of themselves as opposed to just props of their bodies which the men tend to be relegated to but yeah very interesting
0: wow i studied english but i i did not do a shakespeare paper because <laughs> i kind of went nah, oh, nah but i have to admit you have just made shakespeare a whole lot more exciting so we'll let you get on with that with even mm-hmm. more feminism filling your day but before we end is there anything else that you just want to leave on the
1: table i don't know i just say make sure you go out and educate yourself get involved it's so so easy to get involved if you're listening i don't know who is listening but if you are listening and you've been apprehensive about getting involved in these groups our 10 Probably friends our 10 if friends. you're listening get involved in more stuff it's not scary no one's going to judge you it's actually really good fun and there's lots of of important work to be done and yeah. make sure you are educating yourself and particularly prioritizing lots of different voices and yeah trans rights and all that sort of stuff. Like get involved. It's really important, even if it doesn't directly affect you, do it. Beautiful, brilliant. Well, I think
0: that leaves me into a perfect place to plug mm-hmm. the website as a whole, educate yourself, go and read some things. Once you've done that, come back to us, pitch a poem some artwork an article an opinion piece whatever you want and thank thank you you. so so much Meg for coming on today I will see you soon and to our 10 friends listening (laughs) and maybe Angela Davis I will I will see you also not see you soon I you will hear me soon thank Thank you thank you all right so I'm going to hit finish recording now I don't know something about you know feeding children or not kicking cats when they're dying on the street or something (laughs) you know something that's like a basic thing that we just should do and let Um, the Tories
1: are like no
0: yeah and I was like oh I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna email my MP to do something Mm. and you know what I actually I just got halfway through the email and I was like he's not gonna read it no he's not gonna care Mine He's going to reply and be never. like, I consider this too to be an important issue. I will raise it in private and then absolutely do
1: nothing. I just get a stock email back from Mark Menzies all the time. And I'm like, great, thanks, bro. Yeah. Love it.
0: I'm, mm. like, I'm like, you literally didn't even read this, did you? you you've sent this all. <sighs> so, uh, I'm just at that. Do you know what? I think it's, I'm just at that point where I'm like, why am I, why am I trying so hard? I really hope that this... um Just fumbling, (laughs) fumbling beast. You've got this. We don't have feedback because I can just—I'm just hearing you out loud. Yeah, I can—I can hear
1: you feedback.
0: Mm. You can hear my feedback. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant.